Good afternoon. I'm Christy Brown Montesano. I teach across the street where I'm at the Colburn School, where I'm the chair of music history. And I'm delighted to be able to present the Upbeat Live for what I think is kind of an orchestral dream program. You will be hearing such wonderful orchestration on this program by composers who really knew how to use the entire orchestra, the, the big, huge orchestra uh, in all its color. In fact, I noticed, I, I saw the concert live last night, and the orchestras are so large that the piano soloist, um, Igor Levit, who is going to be playing the Ravel, is almost at the edge of the stage. So it's a lot of, you have a lot of sound packed onto that stage today. So I wanted to um, get into Respighi's Pines of Rome first, because this is kind of the headliner for today, although it's an amazing program of favorites. Um, this was the middle of three works that Respighi wrote that were on the city, themed around the city of Rome, where he was working. Uh, they made him very famous and very rich. It's kind of as a composer's dream to hit one out of the ballpark, and he did with this. The instrumentation is incredible. So this is besides, I'm going to give you a little list here because it's impressive. You have three flutes with one doubling on piccolo, two oboes, English horn, two clarinets, bass clarinet, two bassoons, contrabassoon, four horns, three trumpets, three trombones, tuba, timpani, cymbals, small cymbal, triangle, tambourine, a ratchet, bass drum, tam-tam, or the gong, bells, harp, celeste, piano, organ, and your full contingent of strings often divided, so they're playing multiple parts, plus an offstage trumpet, and then you have uh, people evoking the buccine, or the buccina is the singular, these ancient Roman horns that could play their fundamental and all the overtones of that fundamental. So very limited, boo boo, boo boo, that kind of idea. So you're supposed to evoke the buccine. You have, um, which we're using instead, trumpets and bassoons together. You have uh, four trumpets and two trombones playing in antiphonal groups. So you're going to hear them from around the space. Uh, four Wagner tubas. Um, and then we have the surprise of the nightingale, which we will get to in a moment. One of the ways Respighi was able to approach orchestration with such mastery is that he was for a time a violist in an orchestra in Russia where he was able to study with Rimsky-Korsakov, who of course is one of the great orchestrators of the late 19th century. So having had that experience, he came back to Italy and you would say, okay, it's great, he's ready to go. There is one problem. I would like to know if anybody can tell me about a 19th century, name a 19th century symphonic work for orchestra only by an Italian composer that's famous. <laughs> it's like they're really just not there. The Italians, they weren't into the orchestra alone. They had great orchestra and chorus, so big choral works, particularly Rossini and Verdi both had requiems. But of course, the brand name of Italy was opera, right? So how did Respighi end up being
being associated so much with instrumental works. Rome was the help here. It was the least famous, the least active of the urban centers in Italy for opera. But there, and there was a healthy uh, life for an audience for instrumental works. So this is how he came to write this programmatic set of works, the fountains of Rome, the Roman festivals on the other side, and the pines of Rome in the center, this great Roman trilogy. He was a fairly conservative composer for his time. He had about five minutes of being a modernist and then went back to what he was doing. Uh, there is a story that he tried in the 30s to say, uh, we need to get rid of all this modern music by Stravinsky and Schoenberg. And in fact, he was um, somebody who said, no, no, we're going to keep it. And the person who said, no, no, don't be so conservative, was Benito Mussolini. That's pretty bad when your musical tastes are actually to the right of Il Duce. Um, on the <laughs> On the other hand, uh, he, was a, he was apolitical in much of his life. He wasn't interested in the politics, which is not to say he wasn't a nationalist. Most composers from this time, the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, through the interwar period, were nationalists. Not in the way that word is being tossed around today, perhaps, as much, but they had a great deal of pride in their brand. And Italy had had a long time of being lesser than in terms of particularly orchestral work. So this was a chance not only to celebrate uh, instrumental music of Italy, but also the center of Italy, Rome itself. So the title it got me thinking. I was embarrassed to say that even though my husband is from Italy, and we've gone there many times, I wasn't really sure what the pines of Rome looked like. You know, pines to a native Californian, they have this shape. We make Christmas trees out of them, very clear. So I went and looked and realized, oh, I've seen though, I didn't realize they were pines. This is the stone pine, sometimes called the umbrella pine. It looks like a very long broccoli with a little poof umbrella at the top. It's quite elegant, almost like a flower, and they line the roadways and the hills and the buildings, much as we think of cypresses, but they are the ones, cypresses are shaped like long bed. So there are these beautiful kind of elegant umbrella pines. And the first one he evokes for us uh, in his program is the, pine, the pines of the Villa Borghese. This is the third largest public park in Rome. How many people have been to the Villa Borghese? Wow, this is lovely, a lot of people. So a gorgeous space, a beautiful place for families to bring their children, for people to take a nice walk together, to enjoy the museums, the other things. And this is what Respighi imagined, was children. He saw children at play in the pine groves of the Villa Borghese, dancing the Italian equivalent of ring around a rosy. They mimic marching soldiers and battles they twitter and shriek like swallows at evening, coming and going in swarms. And then, he says, suddenly the scene changes. So in fact, he begins this symphonic poem or program symphony, depending on how you want to see it. It does have four parts, with the sound of children. 
And he does it very cleverly because he strips out all of the bass instruments. So you, if you look along the side of the score, at first we're left just with treble clef instruments, at most tenor. So this is the bright sound that we have. It sounds very exciting, and it's actually very bright. We have that sense, even though it's probably a warm day in Rome, the children bring that sparkle. What happens with young children when they've been playing for a good long time and maybe having a lot of sugar on top? They get a little out of control. I say this as a mother of three. I remember those days where they're just running. They've, they don't even know why they're running anymore. And they begin to get a little bit more mean to each other and, you know, because they're tired, wired. And somehow, Respighi captures that kind of frenetic energy at the end. So we'll listen to a little bit of this. I'm not sure why this is having problems. That. There's our transition. And he takes us to a completely different place. For now, we will go to the pines near the catacombs. Mark Lento. This is our slow movement. And he tell, tells us, Respighi says, we see the shadows of the pines. I think perhaps at twilight. They, that these pines that overhang the catacombs. And from the depths rises a chant, which echoes solemnly like a hymn and is then mysteriously silenced. Respighi was also very interested in older music, as many late 19th and early 20th century composers were. They begin to think about the distant past for inspiration. And certainly there could be no older, in a way, music for Respighi as a Italian than chant church chant and going back to those melodies. And you hear that pretty quickly from the very beginning. So if we move ahead, give you a little bit of this. So that 
And I begin to hear, as I listen to more of this chant, a particular old Latin hymn come to my mind, Jesum Dulce Memoriae. And this is what struck me most. That little figure struck me because as I was listening, suddenly I heard some of this come through. he had to go find in a book and this would have been a heritage that Respighi would have known for this was still music that was regularly sung in the churches and he would have had those kind of melodies in his head and they really pervade the entire catacombs this feeling of centuries centuries being represented by all the people that are buried there so the the feeling of history is strong in this particular movement. And then we get that sense of memory later when he marks for the solo trumpet to be played il più lontano possibile, as far away as possible. It brings us to a sense of remembering. From the catacombs, the depths and the shadows, we rise at night to the top of Gionocolo's hill, the hill of the god, the god Janus, the two-faced god who looks forward and backward, Roman god of doors and windows and transitions. And this is at night, which he treats as a transition because we'll hear the nightingales sing. He said, there's a thrill in the air. The full moon reveals the profile of the pines of Giannacolo's hill. And then we hear the, the nightingale. So this begins with a kind of magical night music feeling. Play a little bit of this opening. You start with a tam-tam. If you know that there's a tam-tam and it's soft, it means there's magic. sparkling piano. And then the clarinet. 
as our instrumental bird. that that melody is come un sogno, like a dream. So it has a dreamlike quality. Later we'll have the sounds also of the oboe and the violin combining as solos, again with this evocative dreamlike sound. This wonderful featuring of our Respighi clearly knows how to use his orchestra, pulling out colors as fits the mood of the part. But probably the most amazing orchestration detail of this work uh, in terms of innovation, not something Respighi was always, except for beautiful orchestration, is that it may be one of the earliest times that electronic recorded sound was combined with the acoustic orchestra because Respighi in his score made it very clear that at the end of this nightingale movement, we're, we're supposed to hear an actual nightingale. And his score calls for a particular recording to be, oh, there it is. Every time I try to remember, do not disturb me. All right, there we go. <laughs> so he said specifically that you were to use the brand new Brunswick Panatrope. I'll leave you to look that up later. The, Bun the Brunswick Panatrope wasn't even on the market yet. It had just been developed, they'd heard about it, they wanted to use this recording. And when Toscanini did the New York, the US premiere actually of Pines of Rome, it was very clear that they said, you ha we have to use in the program, they said the Nightingale song in the third movement of Respighi's work is rep reproduced on a Brunswick Panatrope. So this was quite, you know, new that they had a special recording. It was all great and you're going to hear it. So I had to ask artistic people at the LA Phil, so what are we doing? We will not be using the Brunswick Panatrope. I was very disappointed, right? It is just a sound file on a computer. On the other hand, that is cutting edge. So we are in the spirit, if not the letter of the law for Respighi, that we will be hearing that. And I have to say, as in some ways slightly cheesy, I found myself very moved by this last night at the end of the movement. So I'm not gonna play it for you because I think the live experience is quite special. And uh, so especially for those of you who have never heard Pines of Rhone live, I'll save that. We'll turn again instead to the last movement. And this is by far the most nationalist. 
uh, the pines of the Appian Way, so the, you know, the road of ancient Rome, and the program, you can bet that Mussolini loved this. So misty dawn on the Appian Way, the tragic country is guarded by solitary pines, so now pines as sentinels. Indistinctly, incessantly, the rhythm of unending steps. The poet has a fantastic vision of past glories. Trumpets blare, and the army of the consul bursts forth in a grandeur of a newly risen sun toward the sacred way, mounting in triumph the Capitoline Hill. So when you listen, you can uh, hear these distant steps. And there's also a kind of, ah, ah, ah. And he says, come un lamento, like a lament. So let's listen to a little bit of this beginning. Let's see if I can find. English horn. I can't help but see a film, you know, where the togas are on. you imagine the Roman troops with their distant from the back. And you'll hear this. I love the use of space of this piece, of acoustical distance, of theater for an orchestral work. So you definitely get a lot of that um, in this. I, do, I will not play the end because the ending is too tremendous. And you should feel honestly overwhelmed by it. The sheer, the, the organ comes in, it's pulling out the stops, literally. So you will enjoy that, I'm sure. The other kind of larger piece, we'll get to the, also the concerto, is Debussy's Iberia. And it's also about a place, but not one that Debussy knew well. It's slightly exotic. He actually only visited Spain for a single day. Crossed the border, <laughs> you know, had some food, watched a bullfight, that did happen, and then came back. But he had this impression. At the, in a different way, Spanish music was in vogue in Paris. Many Span native Spanish composers worked and lived or studied in Paris during Debussy's lifetime, including Albanes, who wrote a set of piano pieces, also called Iberia. Granados was there for a time, De Falla studied. So there were Spanish composers writing Spanish-inflected music. But there were also a lot of French composers. Lalo wrote some, um, he actually wrote a Symphonie Espagnole for the violin virtuoso from Spain, Pablo Sarasate. Uh, Emmanuel Chabrier also wrote uh, in España. And of course, the, some of the most famous come from Ravel who has a Rhapsody Espanol written right around the time of Iberia. He has an opera with a Spanish theme, and of course, 
the Spanish piece of all Spanish pieces, Bolero, right? That one is right. So he, but, but Ravel had a family connection. Mother was from the Basque region. He was born in the Basque area. And mom had shared with him the melodies and songs of his Basque Spanish culture. So he stayed close. Debussy wasn't that interested in that part of it. He saw a chance to evoke an exotic place with the orchestra, and he does it beautifully. So there's a few instruments that you're going to want to have on hand if you're going to write Spanish music. And both Ravel and Debussy use this. So what's a couple Spanish invoke? Castanets, that's the one. That's the first big one. You would think guitar, also I'm hearing, but castanets become our symbol. It's like if you're not, and the, the percussionist does not have to master that. Did anybody own those things? Did anybody really learn how to play them? I got them and you're like, click, 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 it was completely, now they have this very kind of, they're on a kind of thing that reverbs, you know, so they're able to, no, those things, special talent. Castanets, very big. Also, the tambour de Basque, which is the tambourine. So the Basque little drum. So those are a big part of it. And you can certainly hear that in Iberia early on. And his first movement is along the highways and byways. So we'll listen to a little bit of that. Part of you is going to want to be going, right? A little flamenco. I did anyway. Maybe that was just me. <laughs> so it's beautifully evocative. It has the rhythmic pulse of Spanish dance and those kind of exotic melodies, which are wonderful. Uh, another thing that he does in his second movement, Les Parfums de la Nuit, the fragrances of night, which he says are slow and dreamy, you get an idea of the sound, of a feeling of a wafting fragrance through the air. Here's just one little example. different times he has the celeste he says should be played sweet and even divisi strings the harp sweet and light and a solo horn marked sweet and melancholy so sweetness is the important thing and each of them with a slightly different tint of sweetness just play just a tiny bit of this
And honestly, recordings over loudspeakers cannot match what you're going to hear in the hall, where each little color comes out so wonderfully in that space. I want to turn just for the last few minutes that we're together to the concerto. So what, not only is this a, a wonderful piece, but it does beg the question of, first of all, why it was written, but also how was it crafted? So Paul Wittgenstein was the pianist who was injured and captured in World War I. He was an Austrian. The Russian, uh, a Russian soldier shot him in the elbow, and he was taken to Siberia, and they amputated his right arm. So he lost the entire arm and came back, not only through the horrible shadow of war, but as a pianist with one hand. So he did not take this as defeat. Instead, as a musical, musician from a musical family, he commissioned numerous left-hand concertos from Benjamin Britten, Paul Hindemith, Korngold, Prokofiev, Strauss, and others, and of course, Ravel, whose work is the most famous of this set of commissioned works. It got me to thinking about other musicians who we know have overcome physical disability or illness and have continued to make music. Uh, certainly, you can think of Beethoven from the beginning of kind of a, a modern concert repertoire of the Western classical tradition, but also Ray Charles, Django Reinhardt being a huge one, Rick Allen of Def Leppard, uh, e Evelyn Glennie, the deaf percussionist who plays, uh, the French jazz pianist Michel Petrucciani, who was born with glass bones disease, Leon Fleischer, the great American pianist who lost uh, the use of his right hand used to f due to focal dystonia, where it becomes cramped and the muscles begin to come into them. And he also continued to play with his left hand, as did the British pianist Harriet Pearl um, Cohen, who was the one to premiere Ray Fon Williams' Piano Concerto, uh, as well as Elgar's Piano Quintet. And she lost the use of her right hand and continued to work with her left hand. Um, I'm reminded one, by one of our guests also of the pianist Gary Grafman, who seems to have had the same dystonia. Uh, I was explained that uh, with the use of Botox is now returning movement to his right hand. So we can, only, we can look at how medicine changes. But all of this speaks to me, first of all, of the immense drive of a musician when they're determined to create, or any artist, or any person when they're driven to overcome physical disability, injury, sickness, and continue creating and doing. So I think for Ravel, who lost many friends in World War I, his um, homage, his uh, tombeau du Couperin is dedicated, each of the movements, to somebody he lost in World War I. I think he found this to be gratifying. But where do you start? to write a concerto for left hand. So he referred to numerous works that existed to strengthen or show off left-handed pianism. Carl Czerny wrote 
The School of the Left Hand. Camille Saint-Saëns wrote six etudes, etudes for the left hand. Scriabin has a prelude and nocturne for the left hand. And Leopold Godowski, with whom we'll close today, did transcriptions for the left hand of Frédéric Chopin's etudes, opus 10 and 25. And I want you to listen to this particular etude and recognize that it's all left hand. Tonight's pianist, Igor Levit, is fortunate to use both his hands, but he I mean, to have use of both his hands, but he gives this a performance I found incredibly moving yesterday. I see how pianists are used to balancing themselves, so they really do have to get into a different mindset to rely on a single hand, and he throws himself into this. It was very moving. There is a passion about putting everything into that single hand. So you're not getting 50%. You're getting 100% through one hand. It is an amazing thing. This is going to be a beautiful experience for all of you. And thank you for listening. Oh, thank you.